0: And welcome to Start Your Week from the Bunker with me, Alex Andreu. It promises to be a packed week ahead, so let's try to pick it apart with the help of the always incisive Arthur Snell. Morning, Arthur. Morning, Alex. The Omicron variant of COVID 19 has remained and I suspect will continue to be the dominant story this coming week. The government has issued new travel restrictions. Can you update us? The latest appears to be the complete
1: um, blockage of travelers from African countries whilst not really uh, taking much effort to reduce travel from other parts of the world. And Mm. there's a lot of feeling out there that this could be seen as a a racist policy, even if it hasn't been undertaken for racist reasons. The effect obviously targets a particular group. And I think the reason this is controversial is that there is very strong evidence. If you look, there are serious scientists uh, speaking out publicly that Omicron variant is already spreading in the community in the UK so stopping someone from Nigeria coming to this country doesn't actually have any impact in terms of the, the spread of the virus
0: and there's another strand of evidence that omicron is coming from everywhere rather than just from indeed and in fact
1: and in fact it may not you know bit, we're not calling it the South African variant and that's good but it may not have originated there it most likely to it just was first identified there in mm. Botswana where you know, they've got very good surveillance. I think particularly this point about community spread, if there are cases popping up in different parts of the country, I've seen a, a map, which I think the Guardian plotted, but basically all, all parts of the UK, Scotland, Northern Ireland, and so on, then what is the purpose of, of blocking people from Africa?
0: Mm. And these travel restrictions, am I right in thinking they apply to all four nations, because it's not a devolved competence, as it were? That is correct.
1: And it is also the case that if you are a British citizen in Nigeria, you can travel here. So again, that does throw up rather troubling sensations about, is is this really about the prevention of disease, or is this targeting certain people perhaps with certain physical appearances?
0: The travel industry is furious with the new costs, uh, because there's also been another slate of travel restrictions that demand a sort of PCR test before you come back from any country. That's right, isn't it?
1: Yes, indeed. So the the additional layer of testing required, of course, the PCR test is always more expensive wherever you are in the world and takes a bit longer to to get the result and so on. I would imagine for a very large number of leisure travellers, it will just put them off because there's so many hurdles you have to get over. There are so many different regulations you've got to satisfy if if you have a choice not to travel you can see why people won't of course there's a whole other category of people that may not have a choice or if they're actually able to see their families or make essential uh, travel they're going to have to go through this but clearly it is is going to have a very um, negative impact on the travel industry
0: Mm. professor mark woolhouse i think has uh, said that it's it's basically too late to stop it because it's here already. There's a little side story um, emerging, which I find quite amusing. The government is apparently running out of space at its quarantine hotels. So let's see how that develops. On the bright side, there is now tentative statements being made by leading scientists, including people like Anthony Fauci, that, yes, we have to be very careful because it's still early days, but that the severity of the Omicron variant looks to be, at the very least, no worse than Delta.
1: Indeed. Uh, So it it appears to spread more quickly, but it hasn't made people terribly ill. And as you say, it is no worse than Delta. It may even be slightly less severe. So you, Mm. you catch this variant more easily, but it is very unlikely to hospitalise you and and certainly unlikely to kill you.
0: Mm, Which is one of the standard ways um, viruses like this mutate. There's a story in the Telegraph about 300,000 housebound people not having had their booster jabs because apparently GPs refuse to do home visits. Is there anything to this or is this part of the Telegraph's you know, GPs should be open twenty four seven and do house visits because that's how I remember it from the eighteen twenties. I would have thought it's it's more of that. I mean, I know, for example, in in the
1: case of a close relative of mine who's housebound, the GP wanted to do a home visit, and and then it wasn't possible because of a um you know a, a COVID risk issue. This is part of a weird agenda, which, as you say, there's a belief that you're not really seeing the doctor. If you're not driving to a traditional mm. country practice in in on a on a high street that you know is familiar from a Sunday night, um, it's a weird
0: telegraphy yeah. occupation, isn't it? But
1: I would say that what's so silly about this is that I know various uh, people in the medical profession. Of course, my wife's a doctor. I think COVID has had a transformational impact on things like updating the way that GPs are able to operate online. Consultations, all that sort of thing, which probably wouldn't have happened without COVID. And so, instead of celebrating and embracing that, of course, we, we've got the usual suspects wishing that we could turn the clock back to the 1950s.
0: Meanwhile, I don't know if you caught Professor Sarah Gilbert is making a few headlines by having made a, a given a lecture that mentioned preparedness about the next pandemic and saying the next pandemic may be a whole lot. Load worse, and we really need to learn the lessons from this one.
1: Yes, indeed. So, of course, Sarah Gilbert, famously uh, one of the brains behind the AstraZeneca Oxford virus program, she gave the prestigious Richard Dimbleby lecture and talked about the need one to profit from the 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 scientific advances that were made against fighting viruses generally. And of course, that's again a, a positive thing that we should keep hold of. That. The the science of dealing with viruses, both in terms of vaccination but also wider treatments, has moved on leaps and bounds in the last two and a half years. But she did say, "Yeah, this is this is not going to be the last time that we that a virus hits us." And of course, there are reasons for that. You have a highly mobile populations. We rely on trade all over the world. We we order things on Amazon that are still being made in a factory in China and of course there are reasons why that might not be a good thing but that's how we currently live and so yeah her point is that the idea that this will be a once in a century event is not necessarily the case and and we need to be we need to be thinking about what we've learned and how we can be ready for the next one
0: yeah we're moving into an age where there's, there's basically going to be no such thing as, a, as an epidemic. They will all be pandemics.
1: And it's worth remembering that uh, the government itself knew this because I think five years ago, their own risk register identified emerging viral disease, emerging pandemic disease as one of the big risks that the UK faces.
0: Mm. And a recent report by the National Audit Office found that effectively everyone was too distracted with Brexit to follow up on that plan. So yeah. Meanwhile the government is trying to take back control of at least the news cycle by launching what Downing Street is calling crime week, starting with Drugs Day today. Is this just the roster of this year's Christmas party?
1: Well, indeed, we have to clarify, although with the current government, you would assume that Crime Week is a week that you speed up the signing of your um, dodgy uh, contract to to, to lobby, you know, ministers. And, of course, Drugs Day, you know, I mean, I don't normally choose Mondays because you want to be clear, but, you know, it it is the festive season. But no, apparently this is this is uh, we should clarify anti-crime week. Um, (laughs) And and Drugs Day is is the day that you announce your 10-year program. This is what the government is telling us. The 10-year program to confront the problem of illegal drugs use. And one of the things they want to do is, um, with no sense of irony it seems, target the middle-class drugs users.
0: End of the slap on the wrist for middle class drug users apparently they might be given the option to go into rehab or lose their driving license which yeah. seems to be the very definition of a slap on the wrist but never mind yes, indeed
1: particularly if, if you're a member of the urban uh, wealthy classes i i should think that relying on uber will solve most of your uh problems in accessing those drugs but anyway
0: But, you know, they are announcing some money, although I do have a big query as to whether this is new money. So, for instance, they've announced 780 million to battle drug addiction. That, from what I've seen of the announcement, does not seem like new money to me. It seems like health money they've already announced being sort of allocated. A recent investigation by... um, Caroline Wheeler and Rosamond Irwin in, in the Sunday Times found cocaine traces in most commons toilets and Westminster Estate. Is this a good week to be launching Drugs Week when it emerges that cocaine use is rife in Westminster Palace? Are they going to start taking each other's passports? How will this work? I'm reasonably
1: confident that the, the, these laws won't inconvenience any members of the, the ruling party, or in fact, probably any members of parliament at all. I think, taking a step back, you have to assume that this is part of the wider sort of repositioning of the Conservative Party as the party of the the non-urban, non-cultural elite uh, that the party represented supposedly by the striving uh, middle classes of of smaller towns and cities in the north of England and, you know, the so-called Red Wall. And I think it's very easy to construct a myth that the country's major cities, but especially London, are full of cocaine-snorting sort of hooray-Henrys and and somehow suggest that that's a different group of people. Now, of course, the the problem with this argument is that if you talk about middle-class drug use and talk about the Conservative Party, everybody can roll off a list of names that they would immediately um, seek to associate with those two like, activities, including possibly the Prime Minister himself. So it's it's an interesting uh, attempt to seize the agenda, but I think it comes with a certain level of risk.
0: This does really have the flavour of something concocted in a hurry to distract from the conversation about the government's own disregard for rules Rob was meant to end that by doing a round of interviews on Sunday, but he ended up perpetuating it by suggesting extraordinarily that the police is not there to investigate crimes that are a year old. What did you make of that? Well, it is pretty
1: amazing, isn't it? Um,
0: the the realisation <laughs> that... The Justice Secretary.
1: <laughs> the, the statute of limitations is now only 12 months, so... It seems to me, um, again, this, of course, this is all about whether or not exactly a year ago, the prime minister and a huge number of people in number 10, of course, broke the law by having a nice big party when various other people around the same time were fined thousands of pounds and and were publicly shamed in police uh, videos and so on. Uh, during a a period of very intense uh, COVID lockdowns. Mm. So Dominic Raab, Justice Secretary, said that, and I quote, the police don't normally look back and investigate things that have taken place a year ago. (laughs) Which, which, again, uh, one wonders whether we all remember that uh, Tom Cruise movie Minority Report,
0: where crime is, is seen in the future. Well, you and think I, he'll only investigate future crime. Well, probably.
1: I suppose maybe that's where he wants to, um, to sort of emphasize, uh, you know, his, his sort of allocation of, of justice resources.
0: Priti Patel will advance her nationality and borders bill on Wednesday. First chance for Yvette Cooper to have a crack at her. Will Patel be worried? I think she ought to be worried because although
1: Yvette Cooper, I think sometimes people overdo the degree to which she could be the great hope of the Labour Party. She is undoubtedly an extremely effective performer in the Commons, and yeah. that is, I think, that is where she comes across as razor sharp. Sort of person who can kind of punch through uh, any waffle. And by the same token, Pretty Patel, I don't think, is highly rated for her quick wit. So I think she faces a, a fairly uh, tough challenge there.
0: Yeah, Yvette Cooper, I think, my sense is that Yvette Cooper knows Priti Patel's brief slightly better than Priti Patel, which yes. is always a dangerous situation for a Secretary of State. Listeners should also look out, uh, another bit of unfortunate timing, the result of a judicial review into the Prime Minister's decision not to pursue the Patel bullying inquiry. is expected today, Monday. So that could complicate things quite a lot more. Another story is beginning to emerge, which I think will gather momentum in the week, and it is about a proposed interpretation bill. Have you come across this? Yes, indeed. So this relates, in a way, rather strongly
1: to the judicial review question. We've heard a lot of government mumbling about lefty lawyers and judicial review and the idea that the courts being allowed to review the actions of the government is somehow uh, has been hijacked by a lefty woke agenda that doesn't represent the will of the people. Now, of course, it's a it's a pile of crap, but th- this is this is the argument that's being uh, proposed. Now they've gone one step further. They've they've always dangled the possibility that they would limit judicial review, and they've come up with this idea that there would be a once a year interpretation bill where mm-hmm. Parliament scrolls through the judgments of the courts and decides which one they don't like. And then, um, and then of course, they can legislate to set them aside. Now, constitutionally, because we don't have a written constitution in this country, because Parliament is supreme, because we don't have safeguards, uh, we, we may or may not think that's a good idea. There's no reason why you can't do that. Parliament can legislate to do anything it likes. But it's easy to see the problems with this. The idea that the laws are set by Parliament and then uh, judged by the courts is being turned on its head in this case. And and what Parliament is saying is, well, we will then change any particular laws that we think uh, the courts have inconvenienced us on. And it underlying this is, I think, a much more troubling situation where you, as a political movement, you constantly cite the will of the people, this sort of mythical concept, which, of course, in most cases doesn't even represent a majority of the population of this country certainly not a majority of the different nations and you target a inchoate invisible group which is lefty lawyers judges people who are seen to be part of a troubling cosmopolitan elite and this is just another part of the populism playbook which we're currently living under
0: yeah um, edward garnier who was solicitor general under cameron Um, leads criticism this morning by saying the government basically has a problem with being subject to the rule of law. And this is the latest iteration of that. I have to say, as a former lawyer, I find this really deeply troubling because it interferes with the primacy of law in a really weird way. So you can, you know, Parliament can always legislate to replace legislation with new legislation, if it doesn't like the way a statute is operating. But to interfere with interpretation of legislation by saying we don't like this ruling, I don't know what that does to the system of precedent that uh, uh, that courts in England and Wales operate under. Does that mean that cases which have been interpreted in a particular way are no longer valid as precedent? And Courts need to look at Hansard to to see why MPs rejected a particular uh, interpretation. It's very, very complicated, and I think it will come a cropper. I think it's the sort of piece of legislation that the Lords will never, ever let through, but we shall see. Away from Westminster, there are people still experiencing the effects of Arwen, Still without power in in certain villages and hamlets, um, and there's now another superstorm coming called Barra. Arthur, do you think if this were happening in a nice southeastern county, people would still be without power?
1: It's. I think it's impossible to believe. I'm sure lots of our listeners have seen the reporting or maybe seen photos. There was a, there was a really troubling picture of a 90 year old man in the bed in his incredibly cold house under a pile of blankets wearing a woolly hat. He hasn't had power, I think, for 10 days. It's been around zero, uh, the temperature, for, for most of this time. Yeah, if this was happening in Surrey, it just wouldn't be happening. And and ultimately, you can fix this by, if there's an emergency, you get generators. You know, There are lots of ways that you, mm. you sort this thing out if you care about the people involved. But these people are in, in, in the wrong place.
0: According to the Financial Times, Johnson has ordered a de-escalation of tensions with France. What do you think brought about this conversion?
1: What I imagine is that there's a realisation that actually we are, of course, reliant on having a productive relationship with France and actually, you know, all this myth about who holds all the cards. France hold a lot of cards. We We could debate whether they hold more or less, but they certainly hold a strong hand. And whether it's Cross channel uh, issues, wider issues relating to the ongoing Brexit uh, negotiations, or of course, um, something that's coming down the track, which is that on the 1st of January, another slew of transitional arrangements under the TCA, comes into play. So if effectively, uh, you get more friction at borders. And clearly, our, ma- our most important border remains the, the Dover-Calais link. So I, I think that Johnson's realised that he can go, go around insulting both the country and its leadership. But ultimately, they have the capacity to make our lives very, very difficult. And we can't really reciprocate.
0: There's also been a lot of noise coming from the US on this, basically telling the UK to behave, including a, a, a sort of refusal to review tariffs that the US is imposing to the UK until the issue of the Northern Ireland Protocol is resolved.
1: Uh, and that's really interesting, because what what that demonstrates is that actually the, the US has taken a different position vis-a-vis the UK than it has vis-a-vis the EU. Mm. So those of us who think that we are we are the ones with the special relationship, and we're about to get our free trade deal, and everything's hunky-dory in the Anglosphere, well, it it's not reflected in, in this development. And, and that, as you say, demonstrates that the US feels very strongly that it is not in its interest to have an
0: unseemly spat between two of its
1: most important European allies.
0: Mm. Uh, Putin and Biden have announced that they'll be having bilateral talks. Why now? What's going on? Well, we've seen this
1: continued escalation of the situation in Ukraine, by which I mean the, the threat of some kind of Russian invasion or intervention or provocation, Running alongside that has been Biden's attempt to, he can't reward Putin for bad behaviour, but he needs to show Putin that there is an alternative option for him, that he can be inside the tent of the sort of global community, that he can be treated with the level of respect that he deserves, but he doesn't get to go around destabilising countries, invading other countries, that sort of thing. I think what this is part of is Biden's attempt to sort of do, take the Biden approach, which is to be open and uh, uh, come across as 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 sort of consultative and ready to work uh, with the Russians, but with a clear undertone, which is that if you do the thing that you threaten that you'll do, I invade Ukraine, there will be serious consequences. Now, there's another part of this story, which is there is a sense developing that within the Russian system, it is Putin himself who is most obsessive about this Ukraine question. And quite a lot of his uh, senior people are really not at all comfortable with the direction this is going in. And ultimately, mm. is Russia going to be as stupid as actually trying to you know, launch some kind of invasion?
0: One last story I want to mention. Bizarre, completely bizarre, I find it, considering this country's former preoccupation with Chancellor Merkel and its obsession with how Macron is powerful in Europe, there's been near to zero coverage of the fact that, um, you know, coalition deal was struck last week, a traffic light coalition, as it's called, in Germany between the uh, socialist Democrats, the uh, liberals and the Greens. And this week, Olaf Scholz is taking over as Germany's new chancellor, and you would struggle to find any coverage of this coming should we be more interested i think we ought to he's
1: arguably the second most important leader in the western world after president biden mm. it just if you look at the size of the german economy and and its influence within europe and and all the all all, all the kind of reach that it gives gives that country it is pretty weird and it's odd in particular because I think, you know, Angela Merkel had become, unusually for a German Chancellor, had become a globally significant figure. A lot of people look to her as perhaps the sort of standard bearer of Western liberalism in, in a period when Western liberalism isn't having a particularly good run. And yet her successor, who in many ways, although he comes from a different party, could be seen to be the logical heir to her mm-hmm. her political outlook has been largely ignored. And part of that ignorance seems to extend to his attitude to things like the question of, of Britain trying to renegotiate its undertakings to the EU on the, on the Brexit deal, yeah. where it is understood that he has pretty strong views. So yeah, it's strange that we ignore these things. We shouldn't ignore these things. And, and it would be, I think it would be doing a service to the British public if if they were given more information about this man who will play an important role in our lives
0: well they are by this podcast uh, and that's the end of this edition of start your week arthur snell thank you for joining us
1: always a pleasure
0: if you found this podcast useful then you can help us out and spread the word why not forward the link to this episode to three friends you think might enjoy it it's really easy there's a share button in every app and nothing wins people over like a personal recommendation thanks for listening we'll see you tomorrow
1: The Bunker Daily was presented by Alex Andre. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Jelena Sofranievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.